Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. Big E here. And welcome back to you all. We're talking about what do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in the Commonwealth of Virginia to do your job and do it well. Uh, statutes, constitutional law, new cases from the courts of appeals. And thanks for sticking around with us. We, we're in episode 33 now, and I uh, love the response, gotten some really good feedback, and of course, always getting new listeners out there, so feel free to share. We're on iTunes now, we're on Stitcher Podcasts, obviously we're on SoundCloud too. If there's a podcast app that you like, that you wish we were on, let me know, and I'll see if I can get us on there uh, to make it more convenient for you guys to listen. Last episode, we talked about the General Assembly's special session which began uh, you know, all the way back in this summer. And believe it or not, it's still going on right now, uh, even though the actual regular session is supposed to start in January. There are still bills pending that they have to act on. And it's not clear at this point when this special session is going to end. Um, we're hearing different things. It might be next week. I don't know. But there are lots of bills that have passed. And last episode, we talked about several of them. Um, if you listened or tuned in last time, we talked about statutes involving mostly involving use of force and search warrants. So if you haven't checked out that episode, I strongly encourage you to go back and check that episode out because those are really important. Today, I'm going to talk about uh, new statutes involving hiring and also involving decertification of law enforcement officers. And I'm also going to talk about a new statute involving civilian review boards. At one point, there was a proposal to require every jurisdiction to have a civilian review board And the General Assembly did not do that, but they did provide for very broad powers for civilian review boards. So if your locality decides to enact or begin a civilian review board, uh, there's a lot of different potential powers, potential abilities that they could empower the civilian review board with. So we're going to talk about that today. And the hiring and decertification procedures are a little bit complicated, but they're really important too uh, because, you know, as we heard last week, decertification of a law enforcement officer is a pretty powerful tool now and it's a tool that's used for things like you know using force when it's not when it's not uh, permitted under the law so it's worthwhile knowing those as well so what I want to do is start with those uh, hiring and decertification sections and this was actually two different bills House bill 5051 and Senate bill 5030 it requires DCJS to adopt statewide professional standards of conduct that are applicable to all certified law enforcement officers and all certified jail officers, and also to uh, set up appropriate due process procedures for decertification based on serious misconduct in violation of those standards. Now, the General Assembly doesn't go about defining what serious misconduct is, um, and it doesn't describe what those due process standards are. But as we're going to see in a moment, they uh, essentially, you know, they're, they're certainly not... Um, in favor of the Law Enforcement Procedural uh, Guarantees Act. In fact, in instances where there's a civilian review board, uh, they have provided, and you'll hear this in a minute, that the the, uh, Law Enforcement Officers Procedural Guarantee Act doesn't even apply in any jurisdiction that's got a civilian review board. But in addition to that, the General Assembly has enacted a a provision that requires that a law enforcement agency, that your chief of police, your sheriff, shall notify the DCGS board in writing writing within 24 hours of becoming aware that any employee who was, uh, had had resigned or was a certified law enforcement officer who is currently employed, 
who falls into one of six categories. I'm going to tell you what those categories are right now that require this 48-hour written notice from your chief or from your sheriff. Um, the first is <clears throat> if the officer is terminated or resigns in advance of being convicted of or when they actually are found guilty of an offense that requires decertification uh, or um, is terminated or resigns in advance of a pending drug screening. Uh, you also have to notify within 48 hours if the officer is terminated or resigns for a violation of state or federal law. You must notify DCJS if the officer is terminated or resigns for engaging in serious misconduct as defined in statewide professional standards of conduct adopted by the board. And again, the General Assembly doesn't tell DCJS what that misconduct has to be. Uh, but they do require that uh, once they define what serious misconduct is, if the officer is terminated or resigns for engaging in that conduct, whatever that is, and we don't know what that is going to be, uh, then then they have to notify DCGS within 48 hours. Uh, you have to notify DCGS if the officer is terminated or resigns while such officer is the subject of a pending internal investigation involving serious misconduct. Or if the officer is terminated or resigns for an act committed while in the performance of his duties that compromises an officer's credibility, his integrity, his honesty, or other characteristics that constitute exculpatory or impeachment evidence in a criminal case. At some point uh, during the General Assembly session, you saw this reference that would start to pop up in proposals that uh, that there be, you know, sort of a statewide Brady list or that, you know, that if somebody ends up on a Brady list, it has to be reported to DCJS. And uh, this, I think some people found confusing because they didn't know what a Brady list was or the idea of a Brady list seemed foreign. They're trying to, you know, what, what are you talking about? But if you're familiar with this concept, uh, what's happened, and this started in other states, was that a, a prosecutor's office, a district attorney's office, commonwealth attorney's office, would encounter an officer and for whatever reason make a determination, this officer is not trustworthy. I can't put this officer on the witness stand because I'm concerned that if I put the officer on the witness stand, the officer is going to lie. And once maybe one prosecutor or two prosecutors or a group of prosecutors believes that to be true, uh, they take the position, and, the, and, and I think this is something inconsistent that is consistent with the rules of ethics, you know, you have to let your law firm, your prosecutor's office know, hey, look, I don't think we can call this officer anymore as a witness because I think they're not going to be telling the truth. And so uh, offices that are especially large and, you know, don't communicate face-to-face -face would have a list of officers that would say, basically, this following officers shall not be called to the witness stand because they are likely not to tell the truth. And that was called a Brady list after Brady versus Maryland. So uh, it's a list of officers that you basically just wouldn't put on the witness stand. So here, how do you get onto a Brady list? In other words, what is it that causes you to be on a Brady list? Well, uh, a lot of instances of people getting on Brady lists is because there's an allegation that the officer said something that was untrue in some kind of proceeding or lied to a prosecutor about something allegedly or, you know, lied in a police report or whatever. And that uh, causes the prosecutors to say, well, I can't put him on the witness stand. If I put him on the witness stand, even if I did believe him, you know, he would be able to be cross-examined or uh, the jury would find out that he had lied in a previous case and his, evidence, his, witness, his testimony would be useless. So, uh, of course, what happens then if you can't testify any longer, if you're no longer useful as a law enforcement officer because anything that you see can't be testified to, then a lot of agencies take the position, well, you're not really able to do your job, and then uh, you get terminated or you might resign. So here, what they're saying, uh, they don't, they're not concerned about the Brady list or not. They don't 
bring that into this version of the statute. Instead, they simply say, if you are terminated or you resign due to an act committed while in the performance of your duties that compromise your credibility, your integrity, your honesty, or some other characteristic that constitutes exculpatory or impeachment evidence in a criminal case. Now, is it exculpatory or is it impeachment evidence in a criminal case? That's a rather complicated legal determination. So, for example, there's a case called Castillo versus Commonwealth where there's an allegation uh, that an officer had, you know, gotten in an argument with the defense with a, with a prosecutor about whether or not charges should be obtained. Um, the prosecute the the officer took the position that the prosecutor agreed that the you know that this case should turn out a certain way. The prosecutor said, "No, that's not what I said." Um, the prosecutor said that what's in this police report is not true, and the officer said, "No, what's in the police report is true." So there's this dispute, and then later on, that officer ends up potentially being a witness in this murder case, and the defense is angry because this information isn't being turned over. In that case, the Virginia Court of Appeals ruled that that is not something that uh, was exculpatory impeachment evidence in a criminal case, and so that kind of thing wouldn't be wouldn't fall under this category. At least in that particular case, it wouldn't fall in the category. But certainly, an instance where you know an officer lies in the witness stand or something, that's probably going to you know be more in that in this category. So. Uh, what's important about this decertification or what's sort of new about this decertification process is that the board now, the DCGS board, can initiate decertification proceedings on its own against any current or former law enforcement or jail officer whom the board has found any basis for decertification exists um, due to, you know, again, one of these things that I just mentioned, or to some specified criminal conviction, or due to a drug screening, or failure to comply with training requirements. So even if the agency, you know, if your agency cleared you or found that, you know, you, you didn't lie in that case or you didn't make a false statement or it's not Brady or exculpatory information, uh, the DCJS board could still on its own initiate decertification proceedings separately from your agency. Um, now, findings of misconduct, though, um, do not can't be used by DCJS until all grievances or appeals have been exhausted and a finding of misconduct is made final. So even though they can initiate decertification proceedings on their own, uh, you still have the right to go through your own grievance procedures and your own grievance procedures obviously may end up protecting you in that. Uh, but then it becomes all the more important, obviously, to you know know what your grievance procedures are and to take advantage of them. The, uh, the new statutes that were passed in the special session also set new minimum standards for requirements uh, of hiring uh, an officer hiring, and it also requires disclosure of information between agencies. So now when hiring a new police officer, law enforcement officer, jail officer, that agency that's hiring you shall request and obtain from all prior employing law enforcement agencies any information related to one of four categories. Um, any information related to arrest or prosecution of that officer, including something that's been expunged or a criminal charge known to the agency. So if you've got a marijuana possession and it's expunged, um, you know, that kind of thing, it's got to be turned over. Um, they got a request from previous employers, information related to civil suit regarding the officer's employment or performance of his duties. So if you were sued like in a 1983 use of force lawsuit. Um, they have to request from previous employers any information obtained during the course of any internal investigation uh, related to an officer's alleged criminal conduct, use of excessive force, or other official misconduct. And they must request from former employers uh, any information related to a former officer's job performance that led to the officer 
uh, the officer's resignation, their dismissal, their demotion, their suspension, or transfer. And if you receive a request for that information, so in other words, if you're in an agency where somebody has moved along from and they've gone somewhere else, if you receive that, you must turn that information over to that potential employer within 14 days. And uh, there is certainly, you know, right now, obviously, you know, anytime you're in any hiring anywhere, you know, not just in law enforcement, but anywhere, there's a concern about liability, right? I don't want to, you know, maybe sometimes you hear this, you know, said, I'm, I'm only going to confirm that this person worked here. I'm not going to say anything good or bad because I don't want to end up in a, you know, employment lawsuit and some kind of defamation lawsuit. Here, the statute provides immunity to the former employer when they turn that information over unless it's turned over for some malicious purpose or it violates some civil right of the employee or appointee. Um, and just as a side note, by the way, that immunity might be short-lived. You know, obviously the General Assembly is hoping to bring back the elimination of qualified immunity and statutory immunities for law enforcement agencies. If they bring that statute back and it does pass, ultimately, that statute eliminated both qualified immunity and also said that officers don't get any statutory immunity, that would also eliminate this immunity as well. But for now, this immunity that they've enacted just now in this special session would protect you as a former employer when you turn that information over. Um, interestingly, also, you know, and I know a lot of agencies already do psychological examinations of their officers before hiring them. Uh, now they require DCJS to set up guidelines for uh, an officer's for, for hiring processes and provide in the statute that a hiring law enforcement agency or jail may require a candidate for employment to undergo a psychological examination subsequent to a conditional offer of employment uh, conducted under the supervision of a licensed psychiatrist or licensed clinical psychologist. But again, you know, this might be something that you were already doing. The other thing I want to talk about today is what the General Assembly did regarding civilian review boards. And again, there was a discussion for a while that they be required, that didn't end up passing. Now, it the statute that was passed, which is House Bill 5055 and Senate Bill 5035, both provide that localities may, but does not, are not required to, create civilian review boards for law enforcement agencies, including, by the way, a campus police department that is operating in your locality. And if that locality enacts or creates a civilian review board, the General Assembly has removed, as stated for those jurisdictions, the uh, Law Enforcement Officers Procedural Guarantee Act no longer protects those officers in that jurisdiction. It instead states that that locality's local grievance procedures, whatever they are, steps in. So you might already rely on your locality's local grievance procedures because they might also might give you more uh, procedural guarantees than Law Enforcement Officer Procedural Guarantees Act does. But uh, but here, if they set up a civilian review board, then they need to set up a, a grievance procedure, or you know, hopefully we'll be setting up a grievance procedure as well. So what can a civilian review board do now under this? Um, under this new code section. Well, there's a lot of powers that they've given to civilian review boards. So I'm gonna spend some time just listing what those powers are. Uh, they're very broad, and you're gonna see there's sort of a catch-all power at the end that sort of allows them to do, you know, I don't wanna say pretty much anything, but a lot of things. So uh, one of the things they can do is they can I investigate and issue findings on, on civilian complaints. It's not a surprise, right? They can also investigate and issue findings on incidents, including use of force, uh, what they call serious abuse of authority or misconduct, 
uh, also alleged discriminatory stops and other incidents. And here again, these incidents don't have to be the subject of a complaint, right? In other words, they could self-initiate. They could, you know, they could say, "We think this is a serious abuse of authority. We we think this is an alleged discriminatory stop. We're going to do an investigation. We're going to issue findings on this." They can investigate policies, practices, and procedures of your agency. Uh, a civilian review board potentially could, uh, depending on what powers are given to it by its locality, make recommendations cha regarding changes to policies, practices, and procedures. They could request reports of annual expenditures of the law enforcement agency serving on the locality and make budgetary recommendations to the governing body of the locality concerning future appropriations. Um, they can review all investigations conducted internally by law enforcement agencies under the authority of locality, including internal investigations of civilians employed by such law enforcement agencies. And notice here, this is all investigations conducted internally by that law enforcement agency. So literally all of your IA investigations into sworn and non-sworn personnel, they can investigate, they may review those investigations. Again, if the locality provides that power. Um, they may issue findings regarding the accuracy, completeness, and impartiality of your internal investigations and the sufficiency of any discipline regarding from that investigation. If they don't agree with the discipline that was given, they can issue a finding regarding that. Um, now, of course, these are just findings. These are just recommendations. But they can also potentially, if the locality allows it, make binding disciplinary determinations in cases that involve serious breaches of departmental and professional standards as the locality defines. So the, the locality could define what a serious breach of departmental and professional standards is and then give the review board the ability to make binding disciplinary determinations. And those disciplinary determinations can include, the you, could, you could give your civilian review board the power to issue letters of reprimand, suspension without pay, suspension with pay, demotion, reassignment, termination. So a civilian review board could, could make a finding and make a binding disciplinary determination that you should be fired. Um, involuntary restitution or mediation, uh, any of which to be implemented by the local, local government employee with the ultimate supervisory uh, authority of the officers. So in other words, you know, order your chief to fire you. Uh, potentially, you could give your, your civilian review board the power to, to order your chief to fire you. And like I said, there's also a catch-all power at the end. So a locality can also grant review boards the power to undertake any other duties as reasonably necessary for the law enforcement civilian oversight body to effectuate its lawful purpose as provided for in this section to effectively oversee the law enforcement agencies serving under the authority of the locality. So, for example, if they didn't like the way or they wanted the review board to be able to review the way that you investigate cases, um, you know, investigate a murder or, you know, you, they don't like the way a you know, murder investigation is proceeding or they don't like the way that a um, use of force investigation is proceeding or, you know, officer-involved shooting investigation proceeding, you could also grant your review board under this, theoretically, uh, a power to undertake a duty to, you know, look into that investigation, I guess, uh, and, and, you know, uh, and the question, of course, is, well, how would they go about doing that? How would they go about um, actually doing their investigation? Well, the new statute provides that the governing body of a locality shall establish policies and procedures for the Civilian Overfight Oversight Board to accomplish its, its, uh, its tasks. And so in, in pursuance of that, they can hold hearings. Uh, and after they've made a good, good faith effort to obtain voluntarily the attendance of witnesses and a good faith effort, effort to obtain voluntarily the production of records and documents, 
um, they can apply for a subpoena through the circuit court to compel the attendance of witnesses. They can apply to a Supreme Court to compel the production of records and documents and cause, that, cause those uh, to be issued. And the statute does provide that if that's issued and there's a desire to quash that, um, there is a, a person could move to quash that subpoena or quash that search warrant, uh, quash that um, witness subpoena, quash that subpoena for records and documents. The statute doesn't say what the standard is to issue, I mean, to, to block it. It just says that the standard for issuing the subpoena is good cause. What's the standard for the motion to quash? I mean, I guess the standard would be there isn't good cause, right? You'd have to argue there isn't good cause. Um, but it doesn't give much of as far as the procedure for that. And again, this is empowering your locality to then turn around and give this power to the Civilian Review Board. So the locality might, might give that full power to the Review Board. It might give partial power to the Review Board. It might put limitations on the power to the Review Board. Um, that would be for your locality to decide. The statute also provides, again, if you're, you know, if the review board is, if you're trying to think about like, well, how would this physically actually happen? How would this actually take place? The statute also provides that a law enforcement civilian oversight board body may retain legal counsel to represent the oversight body in all cases, hearings, controversies, or matters, and that counsel shall be paid from funds appropriated by the locality, right? So essentially, you would have, you know, like a shadow. You know, in, in, depending on what the locality created, they could almost create a shadow commonwealth attorney or a shadow city attorney or a shadow co county attorney, somebody who is, uh, you know, working for the locality, paid for the locality, an attorney with the power to get subpoenas and search, you know, uh, get subpoenas and witness subpoenas and record subpoenas, do investigations, make recommendations, make findings about, you know, somebody's essential guilt or innocence, make recommendations about somebody being fired. Um, all that kind of thing, and potentially binding, right, all in working for the Civilian Review Board, right? They would be an attorney working for the Civilian Review Board rather than an attorney working for the locality directly or working for the, um, you know, the Commonwealth. Now, again, if you're thinking, okay, well, they made a binding determination, they make a finding, and they say that I should be fired, then what kind of due process rights do I have? Well, you don't have the Law Enforcement Officers Procedural Guarantees Act because obviously they've indicated here that if you've got a review board, you don't get that act. So what you do get, uh, the statute provides, is a grievance proceeding that is similar to other local government employees uh, in accordance with 15.2, which is the grievance procedures in general for local government employees. And you can request a grievance hearing uh, in accordance with those Basically, uh, in accordance with your then your locality's local grievance procedures. So whatever those local, your locality's local grievance procedures are, you could take advantage of those. And some of you come from localities that have pretty robust grievance procedures, and some of you come from localities that don't. Um, you know, if there's going to be a civilian review board, um, obviously your concern would be I would want to have the most protection I could, um, but that's up to you all. So those are some um, pretty big changes. I'm going to talk a little bit here now about some changes involving um, DCJS mandatory training standards and, and so on uh, to conclude today. So a few new instances of compulsory training have been uh, added to what you have to do to become a law enforcement officer and also what you have to do to maintain your certification as a law enforcement officer. The uh, Senate Bill 5014 added new compulsory training on uh, several subjects, su subjects, including 
systemic and individual racism and the potential for biased biased policing and biased-based profiling, uh, including recognizing implicit biases in interacting with persons who have mental illnesses, substance abuse disorders, or developmental or cognitive disabilities. Um, Senate Bill 5014 also added requirements that you be trained in de-escalation techniques, uh, new requirements that you be trained in the lawful use of force, in the use of deadly force only when necessary to protect the law enforcement or another person. Um, and these are standards that DCJS will obviously have to come up with, you know, how, what, you know, what the requirements are exactly to do this and then implement them and require them. But you're going to see that, uh, that this is going to be pretty standardized across the Commonwealth in a moment. Um, the 5014 also added requirements that uh, to maintain certification, officers must be trained in relevant state and federal laws, which kind of already exists. Um, awareness of cultural diversity and the potential for bias-based profiling. Uh, again, de-escalation techniques working with, individual, with individual disabilities. Um, and also, uh, crisis intervention training is now a requirement for all law enforcement officers in Virginia. And lastly, uh, there is a requirement that officers be trained in the handling and use of tear gas or other gases and kinetic impact munitions that embody current-based best practices for using such items as a crowd control measure or during an arrest or detention of another person. And what's interesting about this new curriculum and really all the curriculum is that Senate Bill 5014 now requires that DCGS mandate uniform curriculum and lesson plans to meet these compulsory minimum uh, standards throughout the Commonwealth. And this is going to be true now for entry level for hiring new officers, in-service standards, and also advanced training standards. So now there are, for everything, uh, for all these standards that DCGS is now going to have to mandate statewide curriculum and statewide lesson plans for uh, all of these uh, requirements. And in addition, the statute provides that no credit may be awarded for anything that's a non-standard class if you're trying to meet your compulsory standards. So if you're trying to get your cultural diversity training, if you're trying to get your legal uh, credits, if you, you know, need to get your, um, you know, LIDAR certification or whatever, you know, all these kinds of requirements that you have, uh, you have to use the statewide uniform curriculum and the statewide uniform lesson plan. Now, there is a provision in here that academies may go about seeking a waiver. So an individual academy may go in and say, hey, look, you know, we don't want to use the this curriculum or this lesson plan. We want to use our own for such and such a reason, right? Um, and, you know, you might be, you might have an academy that's unique, like Fairfax has its own police academy for its own officers, or uh, Henrico has its own police academy for its own officers, that kind of thing. They may seek a waiver because they're saying, you know, hey, look, our own jurisdiction is unique, but that's up, for D up to DCJS to grant or deny. And in deciding what the training is going to look like and deciding, indeed, you know, we're talking about decertification, all these kind of things, the DCGS board becomes very important, right? The DCGS training board, the DCGS board in general, um, who's going to decide on what these standards are, what these classes look like, what's the uniform curriculum, what's the uniform lesson plan. The composition of the board then is going to be very important. And the uh, Senate Bill 5030 and also Senate, uh, Senate Bill, uh, excuse me, Senate 5030 um, also change the composition of the DCGS boards. So now the DCGS board and the DCGS training board must contain one representative of a social justice organization. 
Um, the DCJS board and the DCS training board also must have one health service, uh, mental health service provider it has to be added to the board. And uh, the DCGS training board and also the main DCGS board also has to add one representative of community interests of minority individuals from one of four groups, uh, African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American, or Native American. So there has to be one more person added as well. And the DCGS training board also has to add an attorney from the Indigent Defense, Defense Commission, so public defenders, basically. Uh, they get to have a person on the DCGS training board as well. Um, so, uh, a lot of changes this year, obviously, you know, we're talking about lots of changes. We talked about the changes last time involving use of force and execution of search warrants. Here now also you see a lot of procedural train changes involving decertification, certification of law enforcement officers, oversight of law enforcement officers, and training of law enforcement officers. Um, in our next episode, I'm going to talk about changes to the data collection that's required. You know about you know data collection required on traffic stops. That got expanded. Um, there were several important changes to uh, criminal procedure uh, that I want to talk about uh, and a couple of new crimes and offenses as well uh, and a couple of restrictions on uh, equipment uh, in addition. And we're still waiting to hear uh, about some important statutes that are that the governor made some line changes to, line amendments to, and sent back to the House and Senate, including that big statute that I mentioned about traffic stops, uh, providing that you know law enforcement can't stop somebody for the smell of marijuana, uh, or can't uh, based solely on the smell of marijuana, or can't stop a vehicle for driving without its headlights in the dark. Um, those kinds of statutes. The gen the governor made some recommendations about changing that, sent it back, and the House and the Senate haven't taken those up yet. The House and the Senate are also waiting to take up the proposed changes that the governor made to the earned sentence credit, which reduces, essentially reduces almost all sentences in Virginia. You know, right now you have to serve 85% of your sentence. Um, if this bill passes, it would go down to 65% of your sentence, unless it's a certain list of, a small list of violent crimes. Uh, but otherwise, you know, everybody gets basically a 20% sentence cut. That's pretty significant. Uh, and that bill is still waiting to be enacted on by the Senate and House. It passed once. The governor made some very small changes, and we're waiting for results. So hopefully the next time that I, you hear from me, we will have results on those bills, and I can share that as well with you. For today, though, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends. Uh, if you don't like the podcast, then don't tell your friends. Like I said, we're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. Uh, we're on uh, SoundCloud. And spread the word. Other than that, stay safe out there and don't get captured.